this morning in what has been an extended study of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up at verse 19 of chapter 9, working through to verse 29 of the same chapter. Can you guys hear me at all? Is that... Maybe, maybe. Time out. Is that any better? Yeah? Okay. Sorry about that. Well, if you haven't been with us uh, recently, in chapters 9 through 11, um, what is going on in this part of Paul's letter to the Romans is essentially this. Paul is taking some time to address some of the questions that had arisen in response to his teachings, especially with regard to the place of ethnic Israel, that is the nation, the people of Israel, and her almost total rejection of Christ uh, when he was here on the one hand, and then with that, this sort of widespread responsiveness of the Gentiles to the Lord Jesus Christ on the other. Right? So th- those two realities were raising a number of questions in people's minds, including these. What was the status of Israel now as the historic people of God? Given all that's been taking place, the Jews rejecting Him for the most part, and the Gentiles uh, widely embracing Him, what are we to think about the nation of Israel now? As the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as the recipients of the covenants and the law and the promises. What was their status? Had God abandoned His promises? Had they, uh, the Jews disqualified themselves by their continued unresponsiveness? Did the inclusion of the Gentiles signal God's cutting off of His own people? All sorts of questions were swirling around those issues. And so Paul sets out in chapters 9 to 11 to try and answer some of those questions. Now we took a first look at this a few weeks back, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. Paul dealt with this question of how the rejection of Jesus by the Jews in his own day, uh, on whether or not that actually meant that the promises of God had failed. And the conclusion that Paul came to was that God's promises had most certainly not failed because while God was, had always distinguished His people as a, a nationalistic entity, He'd always distinguished them from the rest of the world, God also had always made further distinctions within His own people. And so, uh, God's covenant blessings always have had in view, ultimately, an Israel within Israel, a subset of people within the wider nation of Israel. This is evident all over the Old Testament, specifically in the case of God's choosing Isaac over Ishmael, and God's choosing Jacob over Esau, but you also see it very clearly much later on in Israel's history, especially during the time of the minor prophets and the exiles of both uh, Israel and Judah both of those nations, with return of a very 
small remnant of God's people under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, the response of the Jews, the limited, minimal response of the Jews in Jesus' day, um, and in Paul's day, really, was nothing new. In terms of what God had been doing, in terms of the big picture, it was really sort of business as usual. But then this reality... God's sovereignty and unconditionally choosing or electing to pour out His blessings and favor on whole nations and then upon particular persons within nations, that reality raised another question in the minds of some, specifically the question found in verse 14. Is there then injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? And responding to that question was the focus of last week's study. And in looking at that, we saw how on the one hand, God by definition... By definition, and according to his own nature, he's, he's incapable of being unjust and, in fact, incapable of even being declared to be such since there's no authority or standard beyond himself to which one might appeal to make such a judgment. Additionally, and perhaps more significantly, we saw how those who might charge God with injustice over the fact of his making distinctions between individuals are forgetting an important point, and that is the sobering reality that all humanity stands united in their unrighteousness and in their inherent unworthiness before God. Romans has made that very clear all throughout the letter. In other words, there's no one who, because of his or her own inherent worthiness or deservedness, has, who has any claim on God. There's no one to whom God owes anything, and therefore... All of God's actions toward individuals in this age or any age, all of His actions fall either in the category of justice or mercy. One of the two. But the one thing that no one ever receives from God is injustice. But then this raises a further question that Paul must now address. And it's this. If all of that is true, if God has mercy upon whomever He wills, and if God hardens the hearts of whomever He wills, then as verse 19 asks, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? In other words, if God is that sovereign, He is that sovereign, how can He blame anyone? How can anyone other than Himself be held responsible for anything? Responding to that will be the focus uh, of, for Paul's next new focus for the next 11 verses. That's what we'll be looking at this morning before we dive into that. Please pray with me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please guide us now as we continue to grapple with your word to us this morning. And uh, Father, the, the conditions here are less than ideal for hearing. Lots of distraction, lots of potential for that. Father, I pray that in spite of those circumstances, uh, you would cause your word to land uh, on us in good places, that you would cause it to be effective. Father, there's so much that we do not understand, limited as we are by both our finiteness and our brokenness. We are a proud people, Father, and we all too easily forget our station. Do not remember well the truth that there really is a God and that it's you and not us. 
Help us then, and with this passage in particular, help us to approach you with the humility with which we ought always to approach you. And would you then, for your part, please continue to condescend to us, taking these things that we admit are sometimes too high for us and too hard for us, place them on a lower shelf so that we might grasp something of their significance. Let us then learn contentment with both what you have revealed to us and with what you have withheld from us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen now to the passage before us this morning. In your bulletin, it starts at verse 19. I'm going to start with verse 18 in the reading. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not My people I will call my people and her who was not beloved I will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them you are not my people there they will be called sons of the living God and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea only a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay and as Isaiah predicted If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, as is the case, whenever we study the Bible together, there's always more that we leave out than that we include. And the reason for that is because there's just too much going on in any one passage for us to deal with on any single occasion with the clock running, so to speak. Uh, That being said, there are some important things I think we can still get to in this passage, and I want to highlight three of them for you this morning. First of all, starting with the question that appears in verse 19. I want to think about this question. So let's dig in. In response to that statement that God hardens whomever He wills, that last bit of verse 18, in response to that statement, Paul poses a question that he knows will now come to the surface, at least in the minds of some of his readers. And the question is this, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? The objection in view here seems to be this. God's act of hardening the hearts of some people seems to call into question the rightness of God's then passing a negative judgment on people for having a hardened heart. As one commentator puts it, only if people are responsible for their own actions can God's judgment be truly just. 
Yet Paul's teaching about the sovereignty of God in hardening appears to remove such responsibility. The thing I want you to notice about this question is this. Please notice that the nature of this question, I think, makes crystal clear what Paul has been saying in all the verses leading up to this, especially about the radical sovereignty of God. Now, what do I mean? Some commentators and preachers have tried to, in their writings about this passage, they have tried to soften the blow of what Paul is saying in this section of his letter by suggesting in various ways that Paul isn't really meaning what these words seem to mean. In other words, many of these commentators have been quite uncomfortable with the notion that the sovereignty and authority that gives God the perfect right to have mercy on whomever He wills is the same sovereignty that also gives Him the perfect right to not extend the same grace to all people as with Jacob and Esau, for example. And even further, that sees God as actually having an active hand in the hardening of hearts of some, confirming them in their judgment and condemnation. Because of their difficulty in accepting that God might be that sovereign, some Bible scholars have wanted to ground the reasons for God making these kinds of choices and decisions in something other than God Himself, that is, in the actions and the attitudes of people in question. And in that sort of view, then, all of God's actions are, in fact, not pro-actions, but are instead reactions to previously existing realities or to foreseen ones. Now, we've made it quite clear in previous studies why such a view of God is simply not possible by definition, nor is it even remotely biblical. But what I want you to see is how the question that appears here in Romans 9.19 is really only a further confirmation of the wrongness of reading the Bible in a way that minimizes the sovereignty of God no matter how hard such a view might be to grasp. How does this question confirm this? Here's how. Because if the ground, think about this, if the ground of God's treatment of persons, whether having mercy or hardening of their hearts, but if the ultimate ground of God's actions is something outside of Him, such as the free will of man, and if Paul believed that was the case, then we wouldn't be fielding this question. This objection wouldn't be a live objection for anyone in verse 19. I mean, if God's treatment of those that reject Him was simply a response to their prior rejection of Him, then this question in verse 19 would never have been raised in anyone's mind because the answer would have been obvious. No one would be struggling with it and we would not be reading about it here in Romans. But the question has been raised. And it's been raised because the answer isn't obvious. And it isn't to simply say that God finds fault with some people because they've messed up and they've brought this judgment upon themselves. The question gets raised because what Paul is clearly meaning and saying here is that God has the sovereign right to not only have mercy on some, but not all, 
but also to harden the hearts of some. Which is to say, to not deliver them from the hardness of heart, which he clearly could do if he chose to. So again, the question here gets raised precisely because God is not some passive bystander to reacting to the events of history, but He has proactively planned it and He is presently guiding it and He's making every last bit of it go exactly where He wants it to go. The question gets raised because ultimately behind the fact that the world is fallen and that all people stand before God condemned in their sin, and people do certainly harden their own hearts. We do that, as we saw that last week. But behind that fact is the deeper question of why hardening of hearts even exists as a possibility. Why sin exists, or is even allowed. Why evil was ever allowed to have a toehold in the garden in the first place. Why has such a state of affairs been allowed to exist? Why has God not ordained that things be different from what they currently are? How can He find fault with us without ultimately finding fault with Himself? That's the question. So the question, why does He still find fault, ultimately is a derivative of the more fundamental question of the whole relationship between God and evil and divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And of course, we're not going to sort all of that out this morning or any morning for that matter. The thing I do want you to see at this point is this. The question that's posed here, that's a real question. And it's not a simple question. And it does not have a simple answer. And if you feel the weight of that question, then you need to know you're not alone. Because this is difficult stuff. This is not Theology 101. There are profound truths here. There are mysteries here that we cannot, nor will we ever get to the bottom of. So if you're feeling that, you need to know it's okay. It means you're normal it means you're probably paying attention and that's a good thing. All of this, which leads us to the second and third thing I want you to notice in these verses. And that's the two responses that Paul gives to this question. The first response, let me just warn you, it's not a satisfying response. It's not a terribly satisfying response. It is a sobering response. And it's a firm reminder and it's intended to be and it should be. That's the first one. The second one, also not what I would call a fully satisfying response either, is nevertheless what I'll go out on a limb and describe as having being at least an encouraging and even hopeful response. I'll say why in a few minutes. Let's have a look at the, uh, both of these responses, starting with the first one. Paul's first most immediate response to the question, why does he still find faults found in verses 20? To 21, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? 
Paul's first response to the question, why does God still find fault, is to ask, in essence, who do you think you are? And his point, I take it, is to remind the person who would ask such a question about God to remember their place, to remember their station, even as they're asking the question. God's not shutting, you know, God doesn't want to shut down our questions here. And Paul's not shutting down this question. But I think what Paul is doing is this. He is shutting down the attitude that sometimes goes with the question. He's urging caution here. He's urging the questioner to tread lightly on this holy ground. He's inviting the questioner to engage in some self-reflection even as he or she asks the question. Very much like what happened in the story of Job. Remember the story of Job? All of these calamities come his way. And I mean terrible, tremendous calamities, one after the other. And after doing, a, I think, an a impressive job of staving off his own doubts and questions and anger far longer than I know I ever would have, but he staves all that off even in the midst of all these terrible things happening, even after enduring this terrible counsel from his pathetic friends, after all of that, Job finally gets to a breaking point and he sort of lashes out at God, essentially accusing God of acting unjustly. And God's response to Job, do you remember what that is? He starts asking Job this series of questions about the creation, about nature. Do you know this? Do you know how this happens? Just boom, 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 question after question. What's God doing? What is He saying to Job? Essentially what God's saying to Job with this extensive line of questions about nature is this. He's saying, look, if you don't even know how the physical universe operates, what makes you think you can critique me on how the moral universe ought to operate. He's saying to Job, who do you think you are? Do you have any earthly idea who you're talking with? That's the answer he kissed Job. And Job says, I'm going to stop talking now. I'll I'll be over here. There is a God and you are not Him. And there is a gap between that God and you and me that is analogous to the gap between a potter and a lump of clay. And just as it would be ridiculous to say to a potter that he could not out of the same lump of clay make a beautiful vase and then turn around and make a chamber pot or a toilet with the other part, just that it would be ridiculous to say that or think that, so too is it ridiculous to think that the creator, the creator of the universe is not free to do what he will with his creation. Not only is he free to do it, he is right to do it. That's the first response that Paul gives. And he wants to start there again because I think he wants to remind his readers that just because you have a question of God, even a good question, 
But just because you have a question, it does not give you and me the right to forget ourselves in the asking of the question. It does not give us the right to lose sight of who we're dealing with. It does not give us license to be arrogant and demanding or to think for one moment that God is answerable to you because He is not. And if the God who hardens hearts turns right around and He finds fault with those whose hearts are hardened, it can only mean one thing. That there is fault to be found. We're talking about God here. This is Paul's point. God who is holy and just in all His ways, whose actions you and I are in no position to judge. And just because we have not worked out the precise relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, that doesn't mean He hasn't. Our hands might be tied mentally, but His are not. Why does God find fault? Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? To answer back to God. I know it's not a terribly satisfying response. I know that. I feel that. But that's the one Paul gives. Right out of the blocks. That's where he goes. But then Paul has more to say than just that. What he says there is important. Absolutely, it's a sobering truth. It is a hard truth. And it needs to be said. It's not a very satisfying truth. And in some respects, uh, certainly for those who are creatures who have fallen and limited as we are. But Paul, with his, his big pastoral heart, he knows that. This isn't the only response he gives. And so alongside this sort of sobering reminder about the reality of who God is and our creaturely limitations and who we aren't, Paul goes on to say something else here that, at least to me, seems to be much more satisfying and encouraging, even hopeful. He doesn't just leave his readers with a bare statement of God's sovereignty. He says something that I believe gives us a glimpse. It's a glimpse. But it's a glimpse into why things are the way they are. Listen again, 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What's Paul saying? Let me try and break down what I think he's saying here. And I'm going to come at it obliquely through a side door instead of through the front door. So stay with me. But God wants, this is the starting point. God wants to be known. He wants us to know Him. The fact and the manner of His revelation in nature and in Scripture proves that point. Now, to be sure, he wants to know his creatures too, absolutely. But right now, I want to focus on the fact that God wants to be known. And he wants to be known truly. He wants to be known fully. He wants to be known for who he really is and as he really is. Now, there's limits on that because of our sin. 
and because of our human finiteness. Absolutely. Right? You can only expect a three-year-old to understand so much about quantum mechanics. Still, God wants us to know Him as fully as we can and to see Him for who He truly is in all His wonder and His majesty and His glory and fullness and depth and richness. Why? Why does He want that? Because God knows that as creatures, our deepest and most satisfying and fulfilling and lasting joy will come directly from that. From having a deep knowledge and an intimacy of connection with Him. And that intimacy is a function of how well we know Him and how fully we know Him. And as Jonathan Edwards puts it, if you don't hear anything else I said this morning, hear this. As Edwards puts it, to the degree our knowledge of Him is deficient, to the same degree will our joy and happiness in Him be diminished. To the degree, to the degree that our knowledge of Him is deficient, to that same degree will our joy and happiness in Him be diminished. The fuller our knowledge of God, the greater will be our happiness in God. So God wants to be known, fully known, and He has many attributes all over the Scriptures. But let me ask you a question. Of God's many attributes, which of those attributes would remain invisible to us? Which of those attributes would simply not be known by us in a world, in a universe, where evil and sin and suffering had no place, where such things were not permitted to exist? Even further, which attributes of God might we know, but only in a very limited way could we know them in such a universe? Would we, for example, in some other context, know about His great compassion? Would we? Would we know about His amazing patience? Or His mercy? Would mercy even exist as a concept? Would we know about His grace? Could we even understand the idea of grace? Or kindness? Or humility? Or holiness? What about the holiness of God? How diminished would our understanding of that be in a context other than this? And love? What about the love of God? What about sacrificial love? Could we know about that in a context free of evil and sin and suffering. Did not Jesus himself say that greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for the sake of another? And if that statement is axiomatic, right? If that is, if it is true that the deepest and clearest demonstration of love is seen in self-sacrifice, then in an evil free an even sin-free world, would we ever know the depth of God's love in that way? Would we ever know the depth of God's sacrificial love apart from a context where such a sacrifice became necessary? So ask yourself, what would we not even be able to know Or what would we know only superficially about God in a context other than this? 
I think that's essentially what's going on in the background of what Paul is saying in verses 22 to 24. What if God, asks Paul, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power? In other words, Paul's saying, what if God wanted to reveal those particular attributes, those aspects of His character, specifically His holy wrath against evil and His power, the power of judgment, the power to overcome evil? What if God wanted to reveal those things about Himself? But before we go and respond to that, let's go a little further because Paul doesn't stop there. It's not just that God wanted to reveal His wrath and His power, but as verse 23 shows, He wanted to reveal wrath and power so that in order that He can reveal something else even better. And what is this other thing? It's the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. God wanted to reveal His glory in all its fullness and richness to His people. And the fuller revelation of His glory apparently included and required the revelation of His wrath and His power. And the revelation of His wrath and His power require a certain context. Apart from which they cannot be known. And that context is a world that looks just like this. That includes evil and sin and suffering. Now from that point in the passage, Paul closes it out by quoting from two other passages, one in Hosea and the other in Isaiah. Main purpose of which is simply to reiterate something he's already made clear. Namely that when he talks about vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory, that category, Paul wants you to remember, includes both the Gentiles and a portion, a remnant of ethnic Israel, not Israel as a whole. And he's using scripture here to underline that. But the thing I want to leave you with is this. And it's the reality and the poignancy and the wisdom of this desire that God has for us to know Him as fully and deeply as we can. And to do so precisely because God knows that our most profound joys and fulfillment are directly related to how fully and deeply and intimately we know and love Him. God doesn't want our knowledge of Him to be shallow and surfacy. He doesn't want vast tracts of His person and character to remain invisible to us for all eternity. He doesn't want to be loved and worshipped by creatures whose love is based on some sort of superficial grasp of who He is. He wants our joy in Him and our worship of Him to come from the fullest possible knowledge of Him. That doesn't answer, I know it doesn't answer or fully address the hard questions. And we're actually going to keep looking at this Chapters 9 through 11 are pretty relentless here. But it gives you a context for understanding, I think in a dim, maybe shadowy way, but how the sovereignty of God, as hard as it may be, actually serves His deep desire to know and to be known. And to love and to be deeply loved and worshipped by His people. Let's pray.
Father, these um, these words can fall hard upon us, and we admit, Father, that before them we can feel a number of emotions. But certainly we must feel this, Father. We are reminded of the tremendous distance between you and ourselves. And yet, Father, remembering that, please help us to remember the fact that you spanned that distance through the Lord Jesus Christ who took on this flesh that so limits us but who redeemed it by His life and death and resurrection. We thank You, Father, that You have been determined from all eternity that 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 admittedly necessary gap between You as a Creator and us as Your creation would not ultimately hinder us having deep fellowship with You. Father, the providence of your purposes is, is mystifying to us at times. And Father, but help us to, to come to the place where we can rest uh, in the knowledge that you as a loving Father, as a wise Father, as a compassionate and powerful Father, you know and do all things well and that there is a place Father from which we will stand uh, with you in eternity and see more clearly then on that day the things that still we struggle with today help us to see that and to hold to that in faith to confidently follow you Father we pray this in Jesus name for his sake Amen We'll now take up an offering to support the work of this church and various uh, other ministries that we support together as a congregation.